You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin and all you listeners out there, I'm sure you're all wondering why we're in this elaborate drawing room. And I just want to let you know that one of us is a murderer, and I may or may not have figured out who has done it. I don't know if my mic picked up the sound just there, but my monocle just popped out. Surely you don't think it was me, Sarah. I mean, maybe it was you, maybe it wasn't. We'll just have to go through a laundry list of all of the different motivations for everybody here. Well, I hope I have an ironclad alibi. I was probably at the movies this week. Listeners, we've got two really interesting ones to talk about coming up this episode. First up is Ryan Johnson's follow-up to his successful drawing room mystery, Knives Out. This time around, it's called Glass Onion. And then we take a trip back to 1963 Japan and Akira Kurosawa's mystery movie, High and Low, for the watch list. Looking forward to talking about that one, but Sarah, stay away from me with that candlestick. I make no such guarantees. Listeners, you'll have to listen to the very end of the episode to figure out if I did it on episode 359 of Seeing and Believing. Ladies and gentlemen, You expect it? The mystery. Get your hand off of that. You expected a puzzle. But for one person on this island, this is not a game. Will you explain it to us then, detective? The game is afoot on Seeing and Believing episode 359. Sarah, I'm glad you're you're here with me to uh, put together a very special Thanksgiving slash murder episode for <laughs> for the holiday weekend. Cozy mysteries and then maybe not so cozy mysteries to follow up. Now, cozy mysteries, that's that's a very technical term, right? Cozy mysteries is sort of isn't that a reference to how the British just put together these shows were in a small village where everybody just is constantly dying and it's just very nice to watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So maybe, I guess, I don't know, does, does knives out, does that knives out universe count as a cozy mystery? Cause it feels cozy to me, but maybe that's because I just like watching Ryan Johnson's uh, just do his thing. I mean, it could probably qualify once it has a few more movies under its belt. I feel like it can't quite approach the level of something like midsummer murders until you have a pretty healthy body count and a good bunch of serialization going. So fair enough. We probably need a little bit more uh, Angela Lansbury running around or something like that to make it qualify. I, I'll, I would take that as well. Uh, listeners, we are going to be talking about the follow-up to Knives Out on this first episode. This is a movie that, Sarah, you and I were looking forward to quite a bit when we did mm-hmm. our fall movie preview, so that's coming up here in a second. We're also going to be talking about Akira Kurosawa's 1963 High and Low to keep with the detective-slash-crime theme, so that should be a good discussion as well. Mm-hmm. But turning our attention to Glass Onion, this is Ryan Johnson's sequel to his 2019 success, Knives Out, 
bringing back Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc, the sleuth with the southern fried accent. (laughs) This fresh adventure finds the intrepid detective at the lavish private island estate of an Elon Musk-style billionaire played by Edward Norton, but how and why Blanc comes to be there is only the first of many puzzles he faces in a gathering that includes an ambitious governor, a spurned business partner, a fashion designer, a scientist, and a couple of social media influencers in there for good measure. And the tradition of parlor room style murder mysteries, each guest harbors his or her own secrets and possibly murderous motivations. When someone turns up dead, of course, everyone is a suspect. So Sarah, you and I, you know, we, like I said, we were both pretty big fans of Johnson in general and Knives Out in particular. Mm -hmm. We are looking forward to another Benoit Blanc adventure. So the next question is pretty logical. How does this movie measure up to its predecessor or to borrow a manner of speaking from the board game Clue, did Ryan Johnson do it in the theater with a movie camera? (laughs) I would say yes. Um, I don't know. I feel like Ryan Johnson just gets me and gets on my wavelength in particular. Um, I was a little bit worried that this was going to be kind of a rehash of Knives Out. And it feels like he's working in a very similar mode to Knives Out. He's definitely working with some of the similar themes and with a zany cast of characters. Um, But this feels distinct and fresh enough to me that it just works. So Knives Out for me, feels very much like an examination, both as as a fun kind of murder mystery. It kind of feels like an examination of money as the glue and the repellent that keeps a family dynamic going, whether that's healthy or unhealthy. And in Glass Onion, it kind of feels as though um, Ryan Johnson is still examining money, but it's a little bit more inflected with how people present themselves on the internet and in real life to each other um, with a cast of characters that could probably come out of, you know, a a Rolodex of Twitter main characters um, and how these characters tend to try to attract power and then are also attracted by power. So I'm, I'm curious to know, Kevin, if this worked for you as well as it did for me. You know, it's funny this feels really timely in, for, for many reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned that the billionaire character played by Edward Norton feels a lot like he was intentionally modeled after Elon Musk. But of course, this movie was uh, wrapped long before Musk sort of became the center of the of the news cycle with his acquisition of Twitter and kind of the way his the public perception of him has shifted since then. But Mm -hmm. it's almost like this, like Johnson was watching the headlines and made this movie in response to that, which of course isn't possible, but just kind of a fun little bit of serendipity. I think in a larger sense, though, it also feels very tuned into, like you were saying, the the way that people um, use uh, the internet and digital spaces to sort of uh, aid or shape their self-presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you know, coming at the, at the tail end of a pandemic where basically all interaction was online. And that's something of course, that Johnson nods to very intentionally with, uh, a couple of scenes where we see Blanc sort of playing among us with, uh, a handful of friends over, you know, over zoom mm-hmm. is, you know, there, there's little touches like that, that show that, Johnson's paying attention to the world around him, and it's kind of gratifying to see him bring that kind of zeitgeisty take to what is a very 
uh, I don't want to say antiquated, but a, a very well-worn subgenre, the kind of the parlor room mystery where everybody's in a confined space and they have to figure out which one of them is a murderer. That mm-hmm. it, it's kind of fun to see him, th- those two things, that very prescient, uh, present focused sensibility mashed up with a, a much more uh, throwback kind of sensibility, kind of see those two things here in the same movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know that this one is quite as successful for me as Knives Out was. Um, and maybe we can talk about why a little bit. But like you, I think it was a really fun ride. And for anyone who liked Knives Out, they're going to enjoy this one as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the strengths of Ryan Johnson is that he knows genre very well and he knows the bits and pieces that make a specific genre tick, especially mysteries and especially this isn't science fiction, but I think he gets sci-fi and he gets mysteries and murder mysteries extremely well. And I think part of the reason why his versions of these stories and in these genres and modes works is because he very clearly loves them. And he loves to show his love for them to the audience. But he isn't just regurgitating the same story beats and ideas over and over again. He's going to tell a brand new story with brand new characters simply because he wants to see that particular genre presented in a new and fresh and interesting way while also being faithful to, you know, the the tropes that build up that specific genre. So for me, I think the thing that works so well is that it's fun to see Johnson just sit down and play in this space and introduce brand new characters to it. And I do feel as though I kind of knew where this movie was going a little bit earlier than I would have with Knives Out. I was still happy to spend time with these characters. Every single one of them, uh, with the exception of one or two, is completely odious and also a lot of fun to be around and a lot of fun to spend time with, um, especially in just this this incredibly sumptuous setting surrounded by a lot of ridiculously good art. So, um, Kevin, were there any of these characters that did or did not work for you? So I, I really want to give a special shout out to Janelle Monet. Um, mm-hmm. and without giving away too much, she's in a dual role in this mm-hmm. film. And it's really a showcase for her abilities to play two very distinct characters. And in some cases, uh, two distinct characters who at points overlap with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's a lot of fun to watch her do. And it's really... Uh, for me, I think she's the the standout in a really strong cast. Mm-hmm. Um, I I enjoyed watching her quite a bit. I also really liked uh, Leslie Autumn Jr. as the the scientist of the crowd. Lionel Toussaint is his character's name. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I think that Odom is really he's an interesting actor to watch, and I think that he of of all of the the cast of sort of the the hangers on of this billionaire succeeds the the most at making a character who is you know as a hanger on isn't uh exactly admirable but he's not sort of the sort of caricature that you just love to hate i think that there's a way that he inflects that character with some some believability and some uh i i don't know nuance that i i found to be really nice as well i think they're all really funny i i i like how um they each sort of have a way of playing into their persona that is 
is fun without being too on the nose. So we've got Kate Hudson as sort of this fashion designer who keeps getting into ridiculous uh, online kerfuffles because of how thoughtless she is in, on social media. You've mm-hmm. got Catherine Hahn playing a, as a quintessentially high-strung person. Her assistant, Jessica Henwig, is sort of the quintessential put-upon personal assistant. I think they, they all work, but Monet and Odom for me are the the clear standouts. What did you think? <laughs> oh man, I I mean I love them all, um, especially Janelle Monet, but Dave Batista deserves a bit of a shout out as well because he's finally been given a role that is actually funny and he's making an absolute meal out of it. Um, he's the kind of character that um I definitely love to hate, but I love to watch <laughs> him as well. <laughs> So, so not a not as big of a fan of of Bautista and say like the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I mean, I think he's I think he's doing a lot with a little in those movies, but here he's able to do a lot with a lot, and he's clearly having a, a good time with it, and with a, a very fun and funny script that knows what to do with a character and a persona like Dave Bautista. Let's talk about that script for a little bit because you you hinted at it earlier when you were talking about the. The way that this both this movie and Knives Out are very interested in how wealth has a way of warping the the people who have it and the people who desire it. Mm-hmm. And I think that this movie kind of is it falls along a similar vein. It's not a rehash of exactly the same things that Knives Out was interested in. But again, you kind of have people who are attracted to the money, who will do anything to acquire money or influence under the the shadow of Edward Norton's billionaire. Um, and, but the the ways in which that manifests are are slightly different than in Knives Out. And I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on on how well that works. It feels like looking at the same problem from several different angles. And I kind of think that that's what Johnson is doing both on the macro level across both of these movies. I'll be curious to see if he follows the same thematic material in the supposed third Knives Out movie that he's supposed to be getting in his deal with Netflix, um, or if he kind of goes off and and does something completely different. Um, But in Glass Onion specifically, it kind of also feels like he's getting at the same questions of wealth and identity and who people say they are and who they present themselves to be through a couple of different angles. And so with Knives Out, it kind of feels as though he's being a little bit more straightforward with the audience. He's working on introducing people to this movie and to these characters. In Glass Onion, I think he's interested in seeing a lot of the different angles from which people present themselves and who they say they are and then who they actually turn out to be. And he's an incredibly perceptive character writer, specifically, um, where he's able to write these characters who are, you, you can sum up who they are in a couple of words or less. You know, you have kind of like a Joe Rogan podcaster type and you have a high-strung governor and you've got a, a scientist who may or may not have traded away some of his morals in exchange for the money and power that he could potentially get in trade for them. But everybody in this cast is both deeper and more than who they say they are and who they present themselves to be. And yet, if you look at them from a slightly different angle, they're also exactly who they're shown to be when you first meet them. And I just think that that's a really neat trick isn't the right word for it, but it's a really 
good and perceptive piece of storytelling where he's able to present all of these characters and show you who they are and then also show you who they are in relationship to money and power and show how they could have all been good people and maybe they were at one point or another but now that money has entered the picture and now that the thought of losing money and losing power and losing influence has entered the picture they're going to be warped by it and I love that he's able to show the different ways in which those different people are warped. It's not all the same thing because everybody is motivated by slightly different things. Yeah, I, I'm I'm of two minds about that because on the one hand, I I think that there is kind of that that multifaceted presentation of these characters you're alluding to, where these characters are more than they seem and yet they're also exactly who they seem to be and mm -hmm. i think maybe the second part of that is what leads me to think that this is to lead sorry <clears throat> and i think that second part is what leads me to rate this uh below knives out is that whereas mm -hmm. knives out i felt like there's a a clarity and specificity to those characters that I found extremely engaging. And this one, I feel like maybe the characters are written a little bit more broadly. Um, there's there's a lot more there, there's a jokiness to it that I didn't really find as much in Knives Out that uh, was a little bit less engaging to me. And that's <laughs> combined with uh, there. I don't know. There's. Ryan Johnson falls into one of my least favorite comedy tropes, which is name dropping celebrities as mm. sort of a joke in itself, kind of like the family guy effect where you just reference a well-known thing and that's the entirety of the joke. So there's <laughs> a running gag with Jeremy Renner's hot sauce that the, you know, that uh, the, the billionaire happens to have a whole palette of uh, Benoit Blanc. We see him playing among us with Stephen Sondheim and Angela Lansbury for no particular reason. And it's, it's fun. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And it's, it's not as if I hated it, but it did feel a little bit like, it was coasting a little bit on that rather than doing something wholly fresh. And that coming off of Knives Out, I guess that was a slight disappointment to me. I think that's a fair point. Um, I, for one, kind of appreciated a lot of those cameos, but it does feel like it's not it's not a joke. It's just a reference. But at the same time, I think all of the references were tailored specifically to hit the little endorphin bu button in my brain. <laughs> and I don't think that they quite irritated me. I don't know if they irritated you. That feels like that's putting words in your mouth, but it isn't it isn't something that necessarily bothered me either just because every single one of them like you you could kind of see a reference or a character coming, but then you never knew who was going to be around that corner. And so part of it was just that spark of, "Aha, I recognize this and I appreciated it." And I think that for me, I also just recognized a lot of the other broader character archetypes that he's working with and I think they would have gotten old if the script had been structured differently. But Johnson's also doing some fun and interesting things here where he's playing with tone and he's playing a little bit with the audience's perception of what is happening in this mystery in a way that I appreciated. And I don't want to give away 
necessarily the structure or how the, exactly that works. But I think that Johnson is doing something where he's not going to give us all of the information right up front, but he's going to give us just enough information to know that something's a little bit off here. And then once we get additional context, I think it makes all of the character motivations make a little bit more sense. And I think they also made me appreciate just the level of playfulness that he brings to this story. So I'm curious to know, though, because I I think in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, I probably would have been a little bit irritated about having my chain yanked around. Um, <laughs> but here it felt like Johnson trusts his audience to be able to understand and pick up that something is going on. And so I didn't mind it so much, but I am curious to know if that structure of the plot and of the storytelling itself was something that worked for you. I, I don't know if it's a structural thing exactly. I did find the twists and turns in this film to be a little bit more labored than they, they were in Knives Out. So hmm. there's there's one point probably about halfway through the movie where, you know, the the murder occurs and kind of, you know, then we're off to the races and uh, we have to figure out what exactly is going on and in arriving at the what exactly is going on point Johnson kind of takes us through a couple of flashbacks and maybe even like a flashback within a flashback there's a lot going on mm -hmm. in the way that Johnson sort of brings it all around and explains the uh the strangeness at the at the heart of some of these character interactions that again while it's while it's not unsuccessful and while i think it really goes down smoothly because johnson uh is such a you know he, he's a he's a good writer and he's a good director and he, he working with his editor he knows how to keep the pacing snappy so you don't feel like you're being totally buried mm -hmm. under an avalanche of exposition and structural curly cues but it does feel a little bit like it's not quite as elegant as as Knives Out was. And uh, I think that's just down to the fact that Ryan Johnson enjoys making a movie like this, but it may not have had quite the the same freshness for him uh, that the, the first film did when he was conceiving of it as a as a mystery to be presented to the audience. Hmm. And maybe that's where the structure and where the characters come from, because it really does feel to me like he's having a lot of fun just sitting and playing in this space. And maybe he doesn't need to get from point A to point B um, in quite so neat a fashion. I do think that the mystery behind the original Knives Out was one where I didn't see the whodunit coming. I think the movie kept me guessing and it kept me guessing in like fun and interesting ways. The mystery at the heart of this movie, I do think is a little bit lesser because once I was able to sit down and think through what had happened up to that point in a slightly quieter moment, about two thirds of the way through the movie, I think I did figure it out. I couldn't figure out exactly how it had been done, but I did figure out the motivation behind why it had been done. Um, and so the rest of the movie, I think I was a little bit less caught up in trying to figure out who done it and more in trying to enjoy watching everybody run around almost Scooby-Doo style around <laughs> this island. <laughs> there is kind of a, a, an extended Scooby-Doo sequence that is what I think is the most enjoyable part of the entire film where uh, the, the lights go out, of course, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> the lights go out and everybody's running around in the dark and nobody, you know, 
there, there's nobody knows who's chasing whom. And they're in, of course, this giant palatial estate. So there's lots of empty corridors, lots of blind corners, uh, lots of, you know, very ostentatious sculptures that this rich person has placed around that oh, are yeah. very good at making the space seem foreboding. And it's a lot of fun to, to see everybody just sort of go crazy for a second. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you like the setting of this versus the setting of the mansion in Knives Out? I think the the production design and the various ways that Johnson uses space and de- and small details of mise-en-scene to build characters and tell us about these people is the film's central pleasure for me more so than the mystery. So mm-hmm. when they first arrive on this private, this billionaire's private Island, you know, they're sitting, they're standing around, they're talking, they're doing, you know, introductions. And all of a sudden there's this, this bongs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that the, the billionaire says, Oh, like that's, that's, it's essentially like a giant grandfather clock. And that is, it's a recurring gag throughout the film. And I loved that part. It, it, made me giggle every time it happened and little touches like that i think are glass onion at its strongest this is also maybe the first movie that i've seen that really leans into uh masking coat like masking for covid mm-hmm. as a tool for character development each one of these characters you know has a different kind of mask that they wear uh, mm-hmm. when they're first getting ready to go to the island for for COVID purposes. And those masks individually just tell you so much about them without you having to be, without having to have any dialogue underscoring it. And I think th- those touches, um, I don't know if that's if that's Johnson or if, or if Jenny Egan was the main driver behind that choice, but I love it. And I, I think that it's one of the film's central pleasures. Yeah, excellent costuming designed by Jenny Egan all around. But I died laughing when I saw one specific character show up to the island in a lace mask. Um, I actually <laughs> saw somebody in April 2020 in real life wearing a lace mask to the grocery store. And I've never forgotten that person. I have always wondered what was going on in their head when they were wearing that. And then I saw the same, almost the exact same mask show up in this movie. And I just had that jolt of recognition, kind of like the jolt of recognition that I get from those cameos but in a this feels real and correct sort of way, even though it's completely wrong um, when you think about it for too long. Um, Yeah, actually, absolutely terrific. Not just the masking, but just the way that all of the different characters are dressed. You, you You can tell so much about every single person just by the way that they hold themselves and what they're wearing and how they're wearing it. There's one character who's just wearing, I think, cargo shorts the entire time. And every time I saw her, she looked so out of place and I felt so sorry for her. Um, But it also fits her character because she's just belabored by everybody else. Um, Were there any other costuming touches that really worked for you? I mean, just just on a a pure like sensory level, I really love uh, for, for the centerpiece party sequence that is where the you know the main action of the film happens uh kate hudson is wearing just a jaw-dropping dress it's just Mm, so mm -hmm. colorful and it's it's exactly it's it's beautiful but it's exactly also kind of the eye-catching piece that you would expect a 
uh, attention starved fashion designer to wear. I, I think it's, <laughs> it, it works both as, as a little bit of a, a, again, a character detail and also just something to gape at. And mm-hmm. maybe that's, that's kind of true of a lot of the details in this film is that this being a movie about rich people, uh, wanting to stay in the good graces of an even richer person and their time on the island almost being a contest of who can be the most ostentatious. You know, Dave Bautista at one time just pull, pulls out a handgun, shoots some, f- fires off some rounds into the air just because he wants attention. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think those little details and the detail of how Bautista himself is shirtless throughout a good chunk of the movie because he's his character is a sort who wants to make sure that you see how much he works out. Mm-hmm. I just think that that's it's it's the kind of filmmaking that you see from a writer director who knows just exactly who these people are in his mind's eye and knows exactly how to present them to the audience. What about you? Um oh my gosh, all of them but I I think all of almost all of Janelle Monet's dresses, um Kate Hudson's dress is excellent, but Janelle Monet's feel like they're the right level of understated but also power dressing at the exact same time. Um and then yeah, I mean, even just um, Benoit Blanc showing up on the island and not really knowing why he's been invited in the first place um, and not even being sure, like, if he can remove his mask or anything like that. I feel like there's those subtle touches that feel very real and very lived in um, and at the same time very informative of who these characters are and and why they um, might all sort of gravitate toward each other or even be repelled by each other. Um, and just, I don't know, really good character touches that just kind of give you, um, a sense of what's going on and that something is, is potentially amiss here as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, at one point we do see, uh, in a flashback, we see Edward Norton's billionaire character basically dressed up as Frank TJ Mackey from Magnolia. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, something's definitely wrong with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then later on, like Steve Jobs, a la like Elizabeth, uh, <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes as well. Like, um, it feels like he's imitating Elizabeth Holmes, who is in turn imitated Steve Jobs in her, t- in her choice of dress as well. So there's, there's a lot of like fun layers in there too. It's, it's a really observant movie just like knives out was like just how knives out is really observant of how very upper crusty kind of patrician types are able to act in a very you know uh, progressive liberal way while also being totally thoughtless and selfish uh i think this movie is similarly perceptive about how uh wealthy people are are able to sort of shift their the way they present themselves in the way that is most flattering to them partly by imitating what they think of as as classy or intellectual mm-hmm. or anti depending on who you're or, talking about or depending yeah depending on what again what what sort of persona they're trying to create yeah mm-hmm. it's the sort of behavior you expect from people who have you know, publicists and, and, and image managers kind of on their payroll. <laughs> yeah. And uh, people who can steal your phone and then uh, you have to get a secret phone in order to be able to still be on Twitter, I suppose, <laughs> like one character does in this movie. So um, I'm curious to know, are you interested in this potential third Knives Out movie that comes out? I was just about to ask you the same thing, actually. And I think, yeah, um, even though this one was a little bit of a step down from the first one, I think that you know, like we've been saying, it just, it goes down so easily. Ryan Johnson is so good at 
creating a mystery that is just fun to explore characters that are are fun to be with and or dislike uh-huh. uh, I, I just think there there's a sharpness and a breeziness to it that i you you kind of miss in in these days of you know focus grouped uh multi-million dollar productions it's kind of a almost a throwback to sort of golden age hollywood filmmaking where it doesn't have to be the most important movie ever to be mm-hmm. a really good movie and i think that Johnson's got that down pat with this movie. And yeah, I think he'd do it with a a third installment as well. Uh, What about you? Um, I would say that this is maybe a half step down and not a full step down from the original Knives Out. Um, But yeah, I I can't wait to see whatever it is that Ryan Johnson cooks up next. Well, listeners, that is our review of Glass Onion. It is out this weekend. So if you have a chance to see it, maybe after after having a little bit of turkey with the family, you want to go out and have a good time at the movies. It is uh, playing in the sneak preview form in theaters around the country. And then later on, it will be going onto the Netflix streaming service in December. So let us know your thoughts. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at seebelievepod. We're going to explore a different kind of mystery in our watch list segment with Akira Kurosawa's High and Low, Don't Go Anywhere. And now it's time for The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. So this is our Thanksgiving week episode, Sarah. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of people are home for the holidays or thinking about being home for the holidays. And so you had a, a question along those lines for our weekly Twitter poll. Yep, something short and sweet. Do you have any movie-related Thanksgiving traditions? And uh, we heard back from quite a few people, so thank you all for writing in. Dave Lester said, planes, trains, and automobiles. And Eli Price responded with, we just watched that last night to kick off the Thanksgiving week. So um, sure seems like planes, trains, and automobiles is on the brain. Kevin, is that a Thanksgiving tradition movie for you? It's not a tradition movie for me. I haven't seen it. I think I've only seen the seen it twice, but I like it quite a bit. And if somebody said, hey, let's watch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, I'd be like, yeah, sure. That sounds like a good Thanksgiving Day activity. But I know from the conversation uh, that happened elsewhere on the question that not everybody is a fan of that film. <laughs> yeah, Ron Sturry wrote in to say, sorry, Dave Lester, anything but planes, trains, and automobiles getting into Grinch mode. And Ron, I'm with you on this one. Um, my husband loves this movie. It's one of his all-time favorites. I personally find it pretty painful to watch, um, which kind of bums me out because I like watching my husband laugh, uh, but I also don't love watching people <laughs> stumble their way across the United States trying to get home in time for dinner. <laughs> oh, that, I mean, you you and Ron are, I mean, I get, Grinch isn't quite maybe the right term just because it's Thanksgiving, it's not Christmas, so I don't know that I can really level that charge at you in good faith, but... Yeah, it, it's there's there's a little bit of grumpiness there. I'm going to take you to task for. <laughs> <laughs> That's allowed. I mean, I'm also one of those people who's like keep the advent and Christmas season. So dour things only until Christmas Day, and then we can start to you know sing all of the Christmas carols and and get a little bit more joyful. <laughs> I will enough. take that mantle of grinchiness. Uh, absolutely, it's something that I'm okay with owning here. 
I can get behind a, a greater attention to the church calendar for sure. Uh, we also heard from Kyle Matthews on Twitter who says, one tradition I'm trying to get my family into is the Mystery Science Theater 3000 Turkey Day Marathon, but they'd rather, rather watch parades in football. And Kyle, I am you're, you're singing my song. I I think that's probably the closest thing to a Thanksgiving tradition that I I have, or at least I would like to have. I would, I love their Turkey Day Marathon, whether, you know, happens on TV or whether they stream it like they have, I think, the last couple of years. Um, I just, I love Mystery Science Theater 3000. It is a lot of where my sense of humor comes from. So mm. there's just, I, I guess that's kind of like a, a real comfort food thing for me. Like there's few things better than just sort of, you know, you've had a big meal and then you just kick back and you watch uh, some funny people make fun of a bad movie and you don't have to think too hard. You just enjoy it and laugh at it. It's, it's a really great, uh, you know, post Thanksgiving activity. And I highly commend it to, to anyone, especially, I don't know if you're, if you're feeling a little grinchy, maybe that'd be a good way to kind of loosen up a little bit. <laughs> it probably would be. So mystery science theater 3000 is definitely a big part of uh, the Welch family's vocabulary. Like we just have MST3K references that we throw around a lot. So maybe that'll have to be something that we include in our celebrations this year. I have to, again, recommend it for sure. Uh, well, thanks for writing in, everyone. Thanks for sharing your your traditions. If your Thanksgiving traditions involve seeing and believing and you're just hearing this episode now and you want to share maybe some other things that you like to watch or do around the Thanksgiving weekend, our mailbox is always open. We love to hear from you. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it and then we come back and we discuss it. So, Kevin, for this week's episode, you decided to pair Glass Onion with A Mystery of Another Sort, which is Akira Kurosawa's High and Low from 1963. Toshiro Mifune plays Kingo Gondo, a wealthy industrialist attempting to take control of the company he works for, which is uh, National Shoes. It's a shoe company. But as he prepares to buy the final shares he needs in order to uh, finish his takeover. He's betting all of his own property in the process. Disaster strikes. A kidnapper targeting Gondo's son, June, kidnaps the son of Gondo's chauffeur by mistake. And Gondo finds himself torn between his life's work and the life of his chauffeur's only child. So, Kevin, there's so much going on here. There's so much to admire here. There's um, I'm, I'm going to just lay out all of my cards on the table and say right off the bat that I loved this movie. And there's there's so much going on with it. There's the script, there's the acting, there's the cinematography, and there's the blocking. So I just want to um, give you dealer's choice. Where would you like to start with this movie? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't really know where to start either. I mean, this is you know, this is a capital M masterpiece and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gratified that you loved it so much because I mean, it's, it's hard to, I, I feel like this is one of the Kurosawa films that flies a little bit under the radar. Like the people mm -hmm. who have seen it know, you know, know how great it is, but often when people start with Kurosawa, you know, they, they watch the, they watch the seven samurais, they watch the Ikiru, they watch Yojimbo, mm -hmm. they watch the, you know, they watch the samurai movies. They might, you know, throw a couple of other films in there, but they kind of, they might go that far and then they might stop. And I think high and low is the one, one of the slightly deeper cuts that people stop before they get to, which is a real shame, uh, because 
in some ways, I think it might be one of Kurosawa's best directed movies. And I just mean mm-hmm. in terms of his mastery of the space within the frame, mm-hmm. the subtle ways that he uses the camera to tell the to impart information. So I guess maybe maybe we can start with there with the blocking and yes. and the cinematography because I think the film is kind of in two halves, right? Like there's the first half where the uh the kidnapping is discovered and they have to try to find a way to pay the ransom or not pay the ransom uh and uh get the kid back. And then there's the second half where they try to find the kidnapper. Mm-hmm. And that first half is almost like a almost like a play. It takes mm-hmm. place almost entirely in Gondo's living room as phone calls are made and the kidnapper contacts them with his demands and the police arrive and and try to, you know, figure out how to bring everyone home safely. And the way that Kurosawa it I mean that first half just flies by even mm-hmm. though it's basically just a bunch of people in a room talking entering and leaving the room but we're always in that room pretty much mm-hmm. and yet the directing that kurosawa brings to it the the way that he subtly shifts the camera to give us a new perspective on the arrangement of the characters in the room and what mm-hmm. that tells about it I, I think it's just i have a hard time even being articulate about it just because it's so magical and yet it's so unshowy like this is not an oliver stone movie like pyrotechnics here it's just very simple camera movements very simple movements of the characters within the frame and it all just works amazingly. Uh, what was your impression of, cause you were, you, were you going into this movie fairly cold? Like how much did you know about this movie beforehand? Literally nothing. I knew absolutely nothing except that it involved the kidnapping of a chauffeur's son. And that was it. So I, I knew nothing about the reputation or the blocking or the cinematography. And I was just completely blown away. Um, you mentioned that this feels like a play and I was kind of thinking the same thing, but usually when I talk about a movie that feels like it's a play that's been filmed, I'm talking about a movie that feels as though it's, it's been filmed in two dimensions. And this is not that because there is so much of that depth of field and depth of space and understanding of space and being able to move all of the different actors around in subtle ways that shows you how the mood in the room is shifting as new information comes to light. So we start off with even just one character entering a room and another character flips the light on and then the camera shifts and you you realize like, oh no, there's there's more people here. There's a little bit more at stake than I first understood. And as the story starts to unfold and we learn about the kidnapping and then the police finally show up in Gondo's living room, um, As additional information comes to light, everybody stands up or shifts or sits down or moves away from the camera in really interesting ways and in ways that that give you like a really well composed image, but also tell you exactly what's going on through that character's head. There's almost no need for dialogue. And I would be really curious to see how this movie would play if there was no sound at all, because I think you would still be able to follow every single character's motivations and what it is that they want from each other without actually having to be told what's going on. Um, And I really want to call out Tashira Mifune's performance, especially in that first half is absolutely incredible. But I also really liked Yutaka Sada as Aoki, the chauffeur. Um, 
he's such a retiring character and he's so unassuming and he feels so ashamed that it's his son who is putting his boss into a difficult spot. But the way that he expresses that shame and that regret and then that desire for help because he is completely helpless in this situation, my heart just went out to him. And even though he was one of the background characters most of the time, I was always conscious of the pain that his character was going through, even though he was never going to own up to it unless he thought that it was going to be able to help him get his son back. And that just, to me, that feels so masterful because I think just about any other movie, I think I would have lost track of that character. And you never lose track of the very human stakes behind the conflict here. Well, this is probably where we can get into talking about the cinematography a little bit, because in this, uh, I, I liked what, how you said that this movie is not shot in two dimensions. It's mm -hmm. very much uh, using depth of field to great effect. It's got that deep focus, right, mm -hmm. um, that the cinematographer brings to it so that uh, the chauffeur is often kind of uh, in the background, like he's he's farther away from the camera uh, than a lot of the other characters are through a lot of this first half of the film. And yet with the different characters moving around in the foreground and the camera slightly moving, that chauffeur is always in view and he's always in focus. Like it, mm. the, there's no time at which Kurosawa lets us forget in the audience that there's a man here whose son is in danger. And this man, like you said, is totally helpless and sort of, at the mercy mercy of what Kingo decides to do eventually. Mm -hmm. um, and while the, the camera moves and the various other characters go to stand in different places of the room, it, it's almost as if there's kind of like, um, like strings attached uh, between uh, the various characters and the chauffeur. So as the camera moves, other characters rearrange, but they're always kind of moving around the fulcrum of Gondo and mm. the chauffeur at, at, at one point. And it's just, it's utterly masterful because again, if you're just watching this uh, and not really keyed into that, it's still very entertaining because it's a very interesting narrative situation and the dialogue is interesting. But if you stop and just pay attention to how the visuals are kind of built around these two figures in that room, mm -hmm. the emotional weight of it really makes itself more manifest. And again, that's, that's just like, you know, chef's kiss directing from Kurosawa here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it gets more and more complex as the film moves along. So um, you mentioned that there's kind of that shift between trying to get Aoki's son back um, in the first half of the movie and then trying to figure out, well, who kidnapped Aoki's son in the first place in that second half of the movie. And at first I was a little bit bummed out to not have Toshiro Mifune around quite so much in that second half, but I really did appreciate kind of the perspective shift and the ability of the movie to move from what's basically a living room drama in the first half into a much more wide ranging and expansive kind of footwork detective story in the second half and to still be able to follow characters who are just as compelling as, as Gondo is. I loved watching Tetsuya Nakadai as uh, Inspector Takura. I've seen him uh, in a couple of other Kurosawa movies before. Um, and I think I've also, I'm pretty sure he's the protagonist in the Sword of Doom as well. And he's just got such an interesting and intense face. 
Um, it was really enjoyable to watch him as a character that I was rooting for this time around because I've always liked <laughs> him as a performer, um, but I've never really liked any of his characters, even though I've liked to watch them, if that makes sense. And so it it was nice to watch a bunch of different characters try to solve this problem in ways that felt interesting and creative, like doing actual detective footwork and um, mystery solving. Um and to also be able to root for them at the same time. And then once once we finally meet, well, who did it? And trying to understand what on earth his his motivations are and why he would commit to do such a thing in the first place. Um, I don't know. I felt like I was completely engaged because I understood most of the characters' motivations going all the way through the film. And then there's kind of this little black hole at the center of it with, well, why would someone kidnap Aoki's son in the first place? Um, and just watching the detectives try to chase this man down and try to understand well, what's going on with him. I don't know. Like it, it felt engaging, but not in a, we're going to withhold all of the information from you just to try to keep you interested sort of way. It was, I was engaged because... I liked watching these characters try to solve this mystery. And I also wanted to understand that motivation. But at the same time, I didn't really need that motivation in order for the crime to make sense, if that makes sense. I, I mean, we talked a little bit about how why Ryan Johnson's films are so interesting to watch is that he kind of just he gets genre. And I think high and low, you could say something similar. This is an adaptation of an Ed McBain detective novel, King's mm -hmm. Ransom. And the second half of the movie where it's basically just a police procedural really reflects that. But it also is interesting to watch how Kurosawa uses that to sort of widen the, the lens, so to speak, of the story. So the first half is basically a parlor room drama. It's laser focused on the, the, ethical conflict that Kingo feels like what are his mm -hmm. obligations as a wealthy man? You know, his, his family, he knows his family is safe. He knows that he's leveraged to the gills with this business deal. He doesn't necessarily have to like, there's nothing that's making him uh, do anything to help the, the chauffeur or, or his son. Um, and, and so he's got a lot of personal stake in his own life and what is it that obligates him to help someone else? That's kind of the central question of that first half. But then when we go to the police procedural in the second half and actually descend from his hilltop manor mm -hmm. into the, the slums of the rest of the city in the search for the kidnapper, uh, that's where Kurosawa makes it, make it, makes it clear that this isn't just about one man's ethical dilemma and the possible financial ruin that he faces as a result of his choices. It's about an entire society mm -hmm. and th the police procedural gives Kurosawa an excuse to take us into the nooks and crannies of this larger world and make the audience confront the lives that are, con are contained in that wider world as well. I think the, the the final uh, the the climactic sequence where they've they know who the kidnapper is they're tracking him and they're going to catch him is absolutely haunting not just because mm -hmm. of the the depths that we get that we witness as a result of it the low of the title mm -hmm. but also just the way that uh, Sutomo Yamazaki who's who plays the kidnapper sort of floats through this world like a specter wearing those mirrored sunglasses is yes. just 
there there's something that is inarticulable about it but it's it's utterly haunting just mm-hmm. how he he just is moving through this world and he's just watching and yet we can't see his eyes what in place of his eyes are mirrors mm-hmm. and there's something very poignant about that there's two additional connections I think to Glass Onion here, and one is the costuming, which I, I also definitely want to get into those sunglasses. Um, but also, I think High and Low is very smart about money and how it can be used as a tool that will aid somebody's ascent, and then how it will also be used to grease somebody's descent um, if they're not careful. Um, there's there's definitely a thread of I think not necessarily even class consciousness, but just consciousness about the ways in which money can be helpful for one person and also a crutch for another. Um, and yeah, I, I love that final sequence of just going through the jazz clubs in downtown Tokyo and trying to figure out um, where is this killer going to to get his method of killing and who is he going to get it from? And just watching him move through the world and through the space Um there's this shot that I think is going to haunt me for a really long time of him walking down an alleyway towards a camera, towards a woman who is addicted to heroin. And she sees him coming and she starts trying to escape. Like she's headed for a door behind her and she can't get out. And those mirrored sunglasses, I think, serve to obscure the kidnapper's identity but I think they also make his face look a little bit like a skull. It's almost as though he's kind of death descending on this woman and he could potentially be death descending on other people as well. It's just such a simple and elegant piece of costuming work um, that I really admire very much and also absolutely gave me the chills when I saw it. Yeah, I, I feel like in some ways this movie kind of ruined me for Matt Reeves, the Batman from earlier this year, because <laughs> it seems like Reeves is really very intentionally referencing this movie with the way the Riddler in that film has those huge glasses. Hmm. Um, the final confrontation between Batman and the Riddler that takes place uh, where they're separated by a pane of glass, I, I think is obviously a reference to the final scene where Kingo hmm. finally confronts the kidnapper and tries to understand him Mm. and that again i I think is one of the the greatest endings in cinema history with just how uh the the part they're they're separated by pane of glass and while the camera is pointed at one of their faces the face of the other is reflected as sort of this ghostly apparition in in the reflection of that glass so we see even when we're doing a shot reverse shot dialogue scene there are always two people in that frame mm-hmm. they there there's a separation between them and yet they they are bound together and then at the end that partition comes down shuts out the kidnapper from uh Mifune's sight and all he can see his is his own reflection in the glass is just i i can't i cannot say enough how i think that is a great, great moment because it 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 basically leaves us alone with Mufune being alone with himself, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Just how he's kind of confronting the fact that he's just kind of had a conversation with evil. Mm-hmm. And also when that partition comes down, he's left staring at himself. He realizes that 
it's not just one person who's the problem here. And I think mm-hmm. that's just masterful. And I think that the movie does a really good job of leading up to that moment. It doesn't feel like it's sort of coming out of nowhere. So we start off in Kingo's living room, like looking out over the rest of the city. And then when the movie takes that midway shift into more of a police procedural, we spend a little bit more time looking up at Kingo's mansion on the top of the hill. And one of the detectives even mentions like the kidnappers, right? This house kind of gets on your nerves because it's looking down on the rest of the city. And when we finally do get to the motivating factor behind the kidnapping, It's so simple and it's so elegant because it's literally just the kidnapper was too cold in the winter and too hot in the summer. And that house just looked so good. It looked like heaven and he couldn't stand to have somebody else experiencing that level of heaven without him being able to do the same thing. You know, it's, it's that idea of, of basically like money being this man's reward in full in this life Mm -hmm. and trying to take away that reward and that sense of peace and security from him. Um, and I love that Kurosawa isn't also going to let the killer off the hook either. Um, I think that there's an incredible level and, and this really speaks to the performance as well. Um, there's, there's this incredible level of conflict and also resoluteness in the kidnappers monologue about, well, why did I do it? Um, And he talks about not wanting to waste his time with empty repentance or gentle lies. He knows what he's done and he's willing to own up to it. And yet after he delivers that monologue, there's just such agony on his face because he knows what he's done and he knows he's not going to be able to right any wrongs perceived or real that have been leveraged against him. He's just kind of stuck with himself until the rest of his life is over, which is not going to last particularly long. So, there's there's that agony, and then I think when we get to Shira Mifune's face reflected back at him off that glass, I think some of that agony is also reflected back at him as well. I, I hesitate to call this a morality play because it feels a little bit deeper than that, but I think that there is a very strong moral backbone to this movie that I respect very much because it doesn't feel preachy, but it also feels very true and very simple all at the same time. Well, it's, you know... <laughs> The the title of the film itself, it's translated into English as high and low, but in, in Japanese, uh, I understand that it's actually something closer to heaven and hell. And you really see that in that final scene where what we're seeing is not just a man sort of being led back to his jail cell. We're, we're seeing a man condemned to perdition. Mm-hmm. And that even, even though he... He arguably deserves it. He's done horrible things over the course of the film. It's a very sobering thing. It's not something to pump your fist over. It's not something to be happy about that we're we're left with the man who lives in heaven and the, the man who lives in hell is going to be stuck there for forever. Like when the movie ends, the, the, the world ends almost Mm. that I think is really, especially for a Christian, I think it it really invites us to think about uh, us feeling triumphant about being saved while other people are condemned. That's not necessarily a good posture to have. And this film kind of makes us grapple with 
the 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 horribleness what a horrible thing it is to be in the hands of an angry god so to speak i think mm. that this film makes you feel that without preaching it at you and i think that's what makes it one of the the treasures of japanese and world cinema yeah yeah incredibly sobering and just incredibly good i'm so glad you shared this movie with me and i'm so glad that i watched it i am always glad to share it with anyone and i'm so glad that you had a chance to to watch it um uh, yeah, the, I, I could keep talking about this movie. It's one of my very favorites. And I, I hope that some of our listeners had a chance to check it out as well. It's a really good one. Yeah, if you did have the chance to check it out, or if you haven't seen it yet, but you're intrigued by our conversation, it's available to stream on HBO Max. And it's also available for rent on most of the usual suspects. So um, if you have not seen it yet, I highly encourage that you do. This is probably one of my favorite watch list picks we've done all year. Oh, that's such a great thing to hear. I mean, it is getting close to the Christmas season, so I'm sure Criterion will also be having one of its famed 50% off flash sales sometime in the near future. So snap up the Criterion edition of High and Low. That's what I use to rewatch it, and uh, it's worth every penny. Definitely. Kevin, turning our gaze towards next week, uh, what is it that we're going to be covering when we talk about new releases? So we are going to be talking about the new Spielberg movie, because how could we not? That would be The Fablemans. Uh, that should also be coming out this weekend. So looking forward to catching up with that one for obvious reasons. And uh, Sarah, you had a, a pick for the watch list segment that is also kind of about the magic of the movies for you in, in a way. Yeah, it definitely is. So we're going to be going to 1967's Jacques Demy movie, The Young Girls of Rochefort, which is also available to stream on HBO Max um, and then also available for rent as well. Um, there's no really strong like galaxy-brained thread of connection between this and The Fablemans other than it's just a movie that is about the magic of the movies and it's bright and it's colorful. And uh, I'm really looking forward to revisiting it again. I haven't seen any Demi films other than the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which just blew my socks off. So I'm looking forward to digging into this one for sure. This one has even brighter colors than the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, if you can believe it. So that'll oh, be a really fun one. <laughs> be still my heart. I'm looking forward to that for sure. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Listeners, thanks so much for spending part of your Thanksgiving weekend with us. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.